Welcome back to the Villainous Podcast. I'm Fred Dreyer here with Andrew Hood. Uh, Andy, we spent a good chunk of today in yet another junior high school gymnasium, this time in downtown Wevelgem. How would you describe the media room for Ghent Wevelgem? Another cold, dank... Uh, it looks like a junior high school basketball court, maybe. The, the, the rims are quite low. I could touch the rims there. You know, they had some cheese sandwiches on yeah. tap, some apples. Hey, no, nothing, no complaints. No way. You know, we're, we're media. We are but humble media. Uh, we're, we have a great show on tap. Uh, we, have, we have scooted out of the junior high um, gymnasium, and we are now, it looks like a high school, um, like the student center. It looks like the common area of this deserted high school. Uh, there's classrooms off to the side. Um, I could envision this where like all the kids are eating lunch and making lots of noise. Um, and we're going to record a podcast here. It's kind of eerie. I don't know. Do you feel like you're back in high school right now, Hoodie? It's kind of like a time warp every time, every time I come back to Belgium. You know, it's kind of like, I'm, it's, I feel like it's the 1980s, a lot of mullets walking around, you know? <laughs> Yeah, everyone's riding a bike uh, and, and having a mullet. Uh, so we have to talk about some racing action because Ghent Wevelgem just finished up a couple hours ago. We're here in Wevelgem and we were treated to a very tactical and very interesting race. So we're going to break down all the racing action. We're also going to hear from an American who won the junior version of Ghent Wevelgem. Quinn Simmons, the first time it's happened. We've never had a junior men's champion here, uh, so Quinn made some history. Finally, we're going to talk about some uh, some Belgian cycling culture and ambiance with uh, your man Hugo, uh, who is with Het Nieuwsblad, a local news reporter, and he's going to edumacate us all on uh, just what it means to be here in Belgium during the, the classic legend, season. Hugo, indeed. <coughs> but let's get started. So, Hoodie, we started the day off in Danza which is a town outside of Ghent, which is where Ghent Wevelgem starts. And how would you describe the conditions this morning in Danza? They were very Belgian. Woke up clammy, cold kind of morning, stuck our fingers out the window. Oh yeah, the wind's kicking up already at nine in the morning. Rolled into town. I mean, this kind of weather just chills me to my bones. I mean, it's cold it's that cold damp weather just kind of goes inside you but the belgians man they're walking around we saw what's a few guys walking around in shorts and t-shirts but i'd say the wind chill factor well i was maybe what uh 45 degrees ish in the morning but i mean if you're belgian that's a sunny day yeah it was cold and we were walking around the pits interviewing people and i had two coats on and was still was still chilly but like you said even in days that we could feel the wind starting to kick up. And to me, that was a harbinger that something big was going to happen. And, and something big did happen because, you know, Genwellvogem was today. Alexander Kristoff won the sprint from, sprint from a diminished group to win the overall race. But to me, the overall story today was about wind and tactics and other teams really trying to take it to quick step. So what did we see in the first half of this race, Hoodie? Yeah, what's unique about Ghent Belgovem is, is the wind and the fact that the race rolls out of the Ghent larger metro area and just really directs, pushes, pushes out west to the Dupani coast. And that's where the wind always kicks up and that's what makes this race always so hard and usually the horrendous weather. Weather, weather wasn't too bad in terms of rain, but today the wind played its starring role as it always does. And really right from the gun, uh, the attacks were happening. The wind was, I think, more than people expected, and it built up as they kind of pushed out further west towards the coast. And, uh, you know, suddenly they caught uh, Quickstep in, in an ambush. 
suddenly the attacks came fast and furious and 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 at a certain point everyone was looking around and there was only one quick step rider in that front group yeah it was a front group of 20 and you had five riders from yumbo visma you had four riders from trek segafredo peter sagan was there with two teammates you saw a lot of stars in there too matthew vanderpool was in there john degenkolb was trenton. in there mateo trenton and like you said they looked around and there was one quick step rider not even a star rider and it was it was the wrong one he was the worker b yeah who was it that made it in there uh, Leclerc. Ah, I mean, he, Leclerc. He, you know, he's the coat hanger. He's got those big brawny shoulders. He, yeah. he's, he's, a, he's out there usually, you know, dog sledding. Yeah. So he was not going to be the guy who's going to win the race for Quick Step. And so we saw these teams really take it to Quick Step, drive the pace, drive this 20-man breakaway away. But it was pretty early. And so, you know, it sounds like Quick Step, while they were caught out, caught out by this move, alarm bells weren't exactly going off. Not yet. It was a. It was very early in the race. It was really in the first hour of racing. Really, we were. Uh, by the time we drove from the press, from the start down here to the press room, we plugged in, and we're like, "Wow, the race is blowing up!" And it really all happened in the first 30, 40 k's. The average speed in the first two hours was over fifty k's oh. an hour. So there was strong tail crosswinds, and uh, but in this kind of course where it's mostly flat until they get down in towards the Kemmelberg, which was really in past. 200 into the race almost um they know these races quick step and this is this is their home turf they know they can read the greens right it's like they play the masters golf course every day of the year basically so they know how to they know how to write read these races and we caught up with Joubert at the finish line and they're like going we're not going to panic yet we know there was a gap they put some guys in the front Van Avermaet wasn't in that front group either, so they had some help from some other big teams. And so they knew that it was going to eventually get caught. It kind of went a little bit further than I think people expected, and it certainly was the dynamic of the race today. But with the, rate, with the team as experienced as, as Quick Step, they're not going to hit the panic button if, they're, if they miss a move in the, in the first hour of racing. Yeah, with moves that go away like that, there's two things that, that can often doom a break. You know, the, there's the length of the race. We, we've been talking to some riders over the last few days about what's the big difference between a 200-kilometer race and a 250-kilometer race? You know, you have that extra hour of racing. And people have been saying, wow, you know, that's where the fatigue really starts to build up and you know early moves don't t- tend not to stay away and bigger groups of riders really have advantage on smaller groups of riders and the other dynamic is just man you know get Wevelgem, especially in those uh, roads north up to the coast they are narrow and they are windy and twisty uh, yesterday i did the cycle sport team the uh, 215 kilometers and we rode up there on all the roads used by get Wevelgem. i can tell you like you know, Belgian roads are, they're pretty windy and pretty narrow, but these ones, they're like a, it's like a bike path. It's a bike path with 180 riders zooming along inside of it. And, you know, when you get a big old bunch rolling through there, um, it's, it, you know, it's pretty easy to control the group. Um, it's, it's difficult to like flow through there really smoothly. So with sometimes you'll see the, the pack is actually slowed up just because they're trying to like squeeze in through these roads. But then on the way back up, some of the roads opened up. And I think that's where you saw Quick Step uh, be able to really open it up. So there were some surges from that front group and uh, it eventually got whittled down. And I think when the TV 
finally popped on. We saw it was like a group of five, Walt Van Aert, Peter Sagan, Matteo Trenton, uh, some other marquee riders, and Matt Peterson was in there, and they were being uh, chased by this group driven by Quickstep. And that was like 70K to go. And that was when I kind of knew, you know, I think this, I think this Get Well Welcome is a little bit unlike Get Well Welcome we've seen before. One other little wrinkle of this course is last year they, they took away one rider per team. So riders going into this classic season and last year's, of course, only have seven riders. So that uh, in a race like today, you know, the you're seeing teams won't let breakaways get as a big a gap as they used to. Same within the Grand Tours, because now you have only eight riders instead of nine. So you're seeing teams keep breakaways on a shorter leash. And sometimes... The other side of that spectrum is it takes a little bit longer to bring them in because they don't have as many warm, warm, fresh legs to chase these groups down. But you're seeing them not let them get really that far away off the front. And even that group and that kind of critical moment, still, it was not even halfway through the race. It was never really getting more than a minute so gap because they didn't want to give Sagan a, a big start, head start like that going into the Kemmelberg. And then at the end of the race, because of those, there's one fewer guy, there's more guys chasing. So at the end of the race, you're just seeing more of a selection of the elite riders. So that's kind of an interesting wrinkle going into the classic season last year and this year we're seeing with the smaller teams. It is kind of playing out a little bit differently tactically. Yeah, and since these races are so long too, like, you know, I was watching this front group of five guys and they were pulling through and they were going hard, but they weren't like killing themselves because you can't. I mean, they still had like 80 Ks to go and they'd already been out there for over 100. And it's like, you're, you're having to gauge your effort so carefully because you know you have so much racing left and you have these hills left. So, you know, you look at some of the names on that list and you're like, wow, Matteo Trenton, you know, Peter Sagan, Mads Peterson. These are real brawny dudes of the peloton. But at the same time, you're thinking they're not going to kill themselves. It's 80Ks to go. Like they know more than anyone that you have to conserve your energy. So as all this was going on, Peter, uh, as all this was going on, Hoodie, I almost called you Peter Sagan. I'd love to be Peter Sagan. Sagan. (laughs) Hoodie, as all this was going on, uh, I was looking at the old Twitter machine and uh, I saw a tweet come across the board from this guy named Billy Innes, who is USA Cycling's junior programs developer. He's the development guy. He's the guy who's in charge of all the juniors in U23s. And the tweet just said, like, yes, that's how we do it. And I was like, ooh, Billy Ennis seems pretty psyched. And then uh, a couple minutes later, another tweet came by, and it said that an American named Quinn Simmons had won the junior men's Gentwell game. That's the How un- rare is that? Under 19. Never happened before. This race has been going on for decades, and we have never had a uh, winner of the men's race. And uh, some of our listeners and readers may be familiar with Quinn. He's from Durango, Colorado. He was a mountain biker, junior mountain bike national champion. Um, he's one of those Durango tanks hoodie. He's like, a, you know, Love it. Todd Wells, Ned Overend, and the tradition of some of those strong men. But, um, you know, Quinn won this race. He won it solo from, uh, you know, attacked out of the lead group and attacked his breakaway companion with 2K to go and rode in solo. And so uh, I, I reached out to Billy and it turns out he was in Wevelgem with Quinn. And so I went and caught up with him. So I don't know, Hoodie, should we, should we listen to what old Quinn Simmons had to say about the day? Well, I put out a tweet that said, is Quinn our Remco? And then someone replied and said, no, he's our, he's our Quinn. He's our Quinn. All right, let's hear from Quinn Simmons about his big win. We have an American winner for, I think, maybe the first time, definitely in a long time in this race, and that's Quinn Simmons. I, I'm joined by Quinn right now. Quinn, 
First of all, how does it feel to win this race? Uh, it feels really good. Last year I was third here, so came in really motivated, made this weekend one of the targets of the season. So to set a goal and to make it actually happen is really nice. So Quinn, we didn't get a ton of TV coverage on the finale, or really any of this race, unfortunately. You know, give me the race report. How did it go down? Uh, well, so basically for the first 60K, uh, we rode real well. Everyone was just taking turns covering things, riding on the front when we had to. Over the second time over the Kemmelberg, a group of about 30 split off. We had three guys in it, so that was good. And then at 15k to go, attacked with one of the British riders and then went solo after with 2k left. Uh, what was it like coming in uh, in those last 2k's? Were you guys doing cat and mouse or taking even pulls? Take me through the finale. Um, it was pretty even really. I knew he was a really good sprinter. He had won Roubaix last year too as well as a bunch of other stuff on the track. So I knew I didn't want it to be a sprint. Going solo would be better. And from last year I came in three-person sprint, managed to get third in that, so definitely didn't want to try and repeat that scenario. So Quinn, you know, we uh, have written uh, over the years a number of stories about, you know, what it takes to succeed in Europe and young riders like yourself who spend time over here, move over here, spend time at the USA Cycling House. You know, what can you say about your experience over the last few years coming over here to race and live? What have you gotten out of those experiences? Um, so last year, this was my first race over here and then did a month over before going home and then coming back, just back and forth for a month at a time. You know, you live with the national team, everyone lives together, so you have really good bonds and the guys always race super well together. You know, basically you just learn how to race over here because American racing doesn't really apply. You can't go to Valley of the Sun and learn how to race over here. So we need, you know, the national team and to do as many races as we can just so we learn the different racing style, learn how to be successful. What are some of the uh, common mistakes you found yourself making in some of those early Belgian races that you did? Well, I, I was crashing a lot last year just because it's so tight, so many guys, such small roads. You come from the US where it's a highway basically, and 50 dudes, and then you put 200 guys on a bike path over here and you just have to learn positioning and learn you know, what part of the race to be at the front because at home you can go to the front whenever you want, but over here it takes five, 10 kilometers just to get to the front of the race before you even go for it. So learning all that and then you know, we brought a really strong team this year, so everyone's pretty experienced, knows what their job is, knows how to do it, and we rode really well together. Where do you feel like you still have some uh, area to improve in these races? Uh, well, I still managed to crash today, so maybe someday get rid, or at least limit that, but... Wait, you crashed and then won? Yeah. Well, I took you through this crash. What happened? You oh, buried I, the lead. What happened in the crash? I um, crashed pretty... It was still in the neutral, actually, and... um. I broke my shoe, so there's probably some pretty funny pictures of me riding with my shoe up and I was pedaling with like a sock on for about a K. Went back to the car, got the spare shoes on, and yeah, got back in the groove. <laughs> I don't think that that definitely has to be a first weekend level cup. Someone having to pedal with their know. sock on for a while and then winning. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Crazy stuff happens over here, so it's hard so, to know. Quinn, another thing, you know, we saw you win the final stage at Redlands uh, a couple weeks ago. You're obviously really motivated. You know, was, were you looking at this season as wanting to be a real, real breakout season for yourself? Well, last year, you know, I proved in this race at least that I had the capability of being up there, but the difference between a podium and win 
it's really quite a lot more than you think. So, you know, did Redlands as training because I knew I needed hard race days before coming over here. And just really, the spring for me is my focus for basically the whole year until World Champs because I want to be a classics racer. And this weekend and then in two weeks we'll race Roubaix. That's been basically the focus of the whole winter was just these two weekends. And Quinn, you know, I've been seeing your results come up on uh, the results pages and following you a bit, but I don't know how much our readers and listeners know about you. Give a little biography. Where are you from? How long you've been racing? That type of stuff. So I'm from Durango, Colorado. Started racing about age of 14. Went to nationals. Got pretty well beat up. This is all mountain bike. So always mountain bike racing. 15, 16. Still mountain bike focused. You know. One mountain bike nationals as a 15-year-old, and then again as a 16-year-old. Uh, end of the 15-16 season, decided I wanted to race road. Got on with Lux on the road. Went to Valley of the Sun. Uh, that was my first win on the road. Came over here for these races last year. You know, got my teeth kicked in a bit. You know, learned a lot, crashed a lot. Did some more mountain bike in the U.S. at home, won U.S. Nationals again, but this time was able to win the road race and the mountain bike race. And then World Champs went for experience and was able to ride for the team and help put two guys in the top ten. Then this year, decided no more mountain bike racing, full in for the road, and yeah, see if it pays off. Okay, so as a Durango guy, you grew yeah. up in this town full of all these mountain bike heroes. Who were like the, the big dogs in town that you looked up to when you first got into cycling? Uh, well, my first mountain bike team, I was on a team with Chris Blevins, yeah. so obviously rode with him a lot, you know, learned a lot from him, you know, super inspirational. He'd gone the opposite way with no road now and all focus on mountain bike, but still, I mean, it's all the same. And you look up to someone like him or you got Howard going to the Olympics or you go on a group ride and Todd's, Todd's there. It's just, you know, you're always trying to like chase those guys and keep up on the group rides. Because, yeah, Durango's a great place to be for bike racing. So with this win, seeing where you are right now with cycling like what do you see as realistic goals for yourself in the next few years well my biggest goal for this season was to um basically get attention of a european team so i can move over here next year i'd like to be living here racing full-time next year basically just focused on doing that for now and you know see where it goes eventually you know the classics will be my focus probably you know it's the races i love the most they're the coolest to watch and now that i get to race them they're the coolest races to race not much of a stage race guy not much of a time trialist so hopefully i can make this the focus of my career in years it's almost like a tyler farah like <laughs> career he was american came over here lived here <laughs> did really well loved these races and made a pretty decent career out of it too yeah you know it's obviously the goal it's it's hard to say that you know Oh, in five years, I want to race the pro hem level hem, but you know that's a goal. All of us want to make it to the pro races. I mean, that's why we're doing these. But you know, so much can happen, and there's so many good guys that really just have to focus year by year and see where you end up. Well, Quinn, congrats on the big win. It was uh, a heck of a awesome result, and we're going to be seeing a lot more of you going forward. Thank you. So, Quinn Simmons, I mean, I think it's just going to be a couple years before we're seeing him in the elite version of this race. He said his big goal is he wants to get attention this year so that a European team could bring him on. I think that's pretty unique. Oftentimes we see these Americans wanting to go right to an American team or American development team, but Quinn's like, no. I want to be on a, on a European team. Um, we, we've seen some riders like, some Americans like that, short, short a course like that, really dedicate themselves to European racing. Like Ty, Tyler Farah is one that's coming to mind. 
Yeah, Farah, it was a rider. He retired last year. He came over to Europe and, and uh, turned his back really on kind of the, the traditional uh, American bridge to Europe. I mean, of course, the original guys that came over back in the 70s and 80s were really the, the break, breaking the ground there. But in that wave that came across in the 90s, a lot of those guys settled into uh, Ghent. Excuse me. A lot of those guys settled into Girona and into uh, Nice. And then uh, Farah said, no, man, I, I want to win the Classics. I'm moving. And, uh, you know, he has an apartment down there in Ghent, right, right along the main canal. He's since moved back to Washington State. But uh, we used to go by there and say hi to Tyler Farah every once in a while when we are here for the Classics. But that's, that's the mentality you need. I still think even today, you know, it's a lot easier to stay in touch with people with social media and everything. It's a lot easier to stay in touch with their family and friends. But if you really want to succeed in Europe, you know, it's almost, you just got to immerse yourself into the European cycling culture. Yeah, especially these junior U23 races. I mean, you could be the strongest guy in the United States and come over here. And because it's the narrow roads and the crazy dynamics and the wind, um, if you don't have those experiences, it doesn't matter how strong you are. That's the whole thing about European racing. It's like everybody's strong. It doesn't matter how strong you are. It matters how smooth you are through the roads and whether you can read the tactics. You know, riding along in these twisty, windy roads, if you're at the back of the pack or if you don't know what you're doing you're grabbing your brakes and then getting out of the saddle to sprint like every 20 feet and just it, to stay on the wheel just to stay on the wheel and it, if you're super strong guess what even the super even the strongest guy in the race is going to wear down if you're having to put in efforts like that so quinn simmons i have high hopes for this kid um i definitely want to see what he's able to do so hoodie back to the pro race you know they're coming into the Kemmelberg for the final time we're seeing some of these guys really start to put in these digs i think well van Aert was going crazy except matthew vanderpool took some uh, some big pulls and attacked and then all of a sudden it's grupo compacto 30ks coming into the finish and that's when the wind i feel like really showed its head well, once they came back off the Kemmelberg, it was really kind of a head crosswind coming all back, all the way back to uh, Velgovim. And I was pretty surprised, actually, how combative that last even 10 or 15 Ks were. Uh, the group was coming in. We saw these little shots off the front. Terpstra went. That group with Langeveld went from uh, EF Education first. You know, and Quickstep had to do a lot of work at that point. They had... Um, Gibert and Stebar just killing themselves to bring it down to control those kind of late moves to really set it up for Gaviria, excuse me, set it up for Viviani. And Viviani, of course, last year was second to Sagan in that kind of heartbreak, tearful uh, loss. And man, Viviani did not deliver the goods today. I don't know what happened with that sprint. I think he was 19th coming in. And, you know, the big surprise to me really was the guy who won, like Christoph. You know, he did a little flyer over the Kemmelbert to be really in position to get over the top and be with the front guys. And I think that worked out a little bit better than he expected. And then he said within 10 Ks to go, Gaviria settled up next to him and said, hey, mate, I don't feel so good. You make your sprint. And he just kind of free soloed it, freewheel it into that sprint and just really you know, beat Degenkolb and beat the, the fastest guys in the bunch. That's a huge win for him. Huge win for him. And, and you know, one of the big storylines we've been following with that UAE Team Emirates uh, team over the last eight months is the arrival of Gaviria and how it really sidelined Kristoff. And Kristoff, you know, he seemed to take it in stride in all of his public comments. He'd say, yes, I'm the lead out man for Gaviria. I'm here, here to help him. I'm here to like tow him to victory. And, uh, you know, you've never heard an ill word from Kristoff about Gaviria. And so it was really interesting in this situation to see Kristoff get the nod. I mean, Kristoff's one of these guys where he's not a very flashy rider. Like, I think a lot of American cycling fans may think of him as being a little bit bold 
boring because ah, you know he's from he's from Scandinavia and he's not doing wheelies like Sagan but uh, he really excels at these hard long races that finish in a sprint so I was surprised to see him win but then looking back on it I, I guess I wasn't as surprised because it was like you know the recipe was there for a Christoph victory in that it was a small group after a really hard day of racing and it was just kind of like who was going to have the most oomph after all those kilometers and I mean Christoph started his sprint pretty pretty early pretty far out and he still uh, held everyone off so, yeah, I mean, you know, Christoph's had a kind of a rough patch the last couple of years. It hasn't really popped those big results. He, he, you know, he's big there, 14-15, one San Remo, one Flanders. I never expected him to kind of emerge as this real kind of dominator in these kinds of classic races. He had never won Kevin Valgovam. And in fact, he said that this is the race that, at least on paper, suited him best of all the races he's done well at. And he's always done quite poorly at this race. And today, they kind of just stacked up for him. And remember, you know, he lost that world title just a few years ago in Norway on home roads. But really... You know, how close was that to Sagan? I mean, Sagan just timed it in that bike throw in the last, you know, couple of the last hundred meters of that, of that to beat, to beat uh, Christoph, you know, to steal away really that world title from him on the home road. So he's been a guy that really, back in Norway, he's quite a big star. He, he is, uh, you know, every time he does anything, the Norwegian journalists are just always uh, very, very excited about Mr. Christoph. Apparently he like um, throws this barbecue on the final, st- after the final stage of the Arctic tour of Norway, that's like legendary. And he's a legendary, like he can like just eat tons of barbecue. I think it was Dane Cash, our former colleague who had attended Ended it and said that it was this just like legendary barbecue. You know, it's up there by the Arctic Eating Circle. Reindeer and yeah. Seal states <laughs> up there by the Arctic Circle, so it stays late. It stays light to like uh, you know midnight, and everyone's just out there at the Kristoff family ranch, just barbecue and having a good time. So my guess is they're going to have another one of those uh, coming up here because this was a big race. You know, a similar dynamic played out. I feel like in the women's race where we saw you know a pretty big field make it over the Kemmelberg together together and then the women started attacking the field but that headwind was just just stifling everything yeah and so as it came into the finish you saw you know pretty big women's peloton and uh kristen wild uh who you know he she won uh, a week ago is obviously on really good form took when it's straight and flat she's yeah. it's hard to beat yeah and so she took the sprint so we had these two you know gen two sprint finishes two sprinters who are known for you know, winning really hard races prevailed. But, but again, they, were hard, they were hard races today. Yeah. Don't, don't think that it was easy going out there. Everyone came across the line collapsing at the finish line. Yeah, we had some grumpy people too. Uh, I tried to catch up Peter Sagan. He was a little grumpy. I think that he was hoping for a bit more. I think he really had hope for that uh, early breakaway too. You know, I mean, there were some, there were some riders with pretty good pedigree in there and they were driving it. And uh, just with the wind and the length of Gent Welvogan. People forget, 250K. Yeah. Like, that's, that's, that's hard. What have some people been telling you, Hoodie, about the difference between 200K and 250K? Well, that's, you know, they, they, they changed this, this, this race and made it a, a, quite a bit longer, and it's gotten quite a bit harder, actually, with two passages of the, over the Kemmelberg now. Um, but that's the, we've been talking to those people about what the difference is between that extra hour of racing, and they talk about the fatigue and really just the depth and he said, uh, who was I talking to? Um, uh, Dirk DeMall today, you know, legendary uh, sport director now, Katusha. He had won uh, Perry-Roubaix back in the day. He says that um, it really separates the, kind of the difference between the, the, you know, the really elite top pros 
and guys who can kind of get by on their talent. You can win races on pure talent sometimes, you know, a bunch sprint after a 200-kilometer stage in a, in a race. You know, if you're just in there and you have that pure natural speed, you can still win races. But you say when he gets up to 250 and above, that's where that depth and that experience and just the ability to handle what it takes to ride that long and then still be able to try to finish it off. And that's what you see in these monuments. You know, it, it, there'll be 20 or 30 guys who can win a race at 200Ks, but when it comes down Sunday at, at Flanders or Roubaix, there'll be five, seven guys who actually really have realistic chances to win. Yeah, I think something else you see is guys have really limited number of bullets towards the end. It's like you start to, do, you know, it from, from kilometer 240 into 250, it's guys have like one or two moves in them. Um, one guy I was actually impressed with was um, Jasper Steuven. Because in that final 6K, he attacked multiple times and actually drew out that group with uh, Jack Bauer and uh, a couple other riders that really forced Quickstep to try and chase it down right to the line. I think Walt Van Aert was in there. And that was one of those where you're like, okay, you still have a couple bullets left in your chamber, even though it's been 250 kilometers of really hard racing. But most guys, you know, it's... You just, you know, they have their one move and then they're, they're host and they have to go recover. So, you know, we got another one of these big, long, hard races uh, coming up in a week. What, what do you think, Hoodie? I mean, Christoph wins today. Do you elevate him into the list of favorites for uh, Tour of Flanders? Oh, I, I don't. I would. I would not elevate him to the top five uh, favorites going into Flanders. In fact, he said the same thing after the race. He goes, yeah. I won today. I rode a pretty smart race today, followed the right wheels. But he said at Harold Beckett, he was getting dropped. He was not able to, to keep the pace of the really the hard, the fastest, strongest guys. So he's not going to be he's not going to be the guy to win. He said he'd love to win it again, but he's even himself was realistic about what's going to happen on Sunday because Flanders is so hard. I mean, yesterday I was down there riding around on, on some you know the Kopenberg and the Paderberg and all these climbs, and man, they're so bloody hard. I can't imagine hitting those things after 200 plus k's of hard racing already. So you know it's going to be the Van Avermaets, the Sagans, the Quick Steps. You know, it's going to be those familiar names. So hoodie. The race finishes up, and we're walking around, or we're running around trying to get interviews. And uh, Harald, or um, again, Wevelgem, I love this race, but I will say the finish line atmosphere in Wevelgem is, is very frustrating for us journalists because um, it's one of these races where you are trying to get a quote at the team buses, but they, they open it up to everybody. And this is Belgium, man. This is Belgium at Classics time, and everyone wants a piece of Peter Sagan or a quick step or whatever. So the buses are just mobbed, and it's this narrow little street, and like cars are trying to drive through it. But it is a special ambiance because people here are so excited about this race. Again, well, it's going, been going on for decades. And so, you know, the, the ambiance of Flemish cycling this time of year, it, you don't find it in the States anywhere it's very unique to this country this region and this time of year and uh, that's why I'm glad you were able to catch up with uh, Hugo Korovitz he's a reporter for uh, Het Newsblad. he's been covering these races forever yeah what did Hugo have to say about like what these races really mean to Belgian culture yeah we talked to Hugo this uh, during a, a little uh, gap and during the race this afternoon we thought it'd be good just to talk to Hugo to really kind of get that that Belgian take on what these races mean because you know we come over here I mean you can compare it to uh, you know college basketball uh, tournament back in the states NCAA you know where people are just so crazy about that event and just get so absorbed in it and um, but 
you have to remember Flanders is like the size of uh, you know a, a large county in Colorado, probably right with you know six thousand people, six million people packed in. So it's just all that passion, all that intensity, really just in, in such small confines. You know, we went to Odenar, we're here in Velgovem. You know, we're going to be uh, at the start of the Ronde in Antwerp. It's it's forty k's, twenty five miles from place to place, and it's just all this passion for cycling and the history, just all packed into such a small place. Well, I think we're going to leave you guys with uh, Hugo talking about what these races mean to Flemish cycling culture. But we're going to catch up with the uh, listeners in another couple of days. We have uh, the race in Dwarsdorf, Landeren coming up in Varagem. We're going to be talking to people, interesting people throughout the entire week. So. Uh, stay tuned to Villainies.com and the Villainies podcast because you're going to be hearing more from me and Hoodie from Flanders. So let's hear from Hugo. Hi, Andrew Hood, Andrew Hood here at uh, Genvelgovem. A little break in the race here. We're outside uh, hanging out in the sun. Kind of warmed up nicely with Hugo Korovitz, lead cycling correspondent for Het Newsblatt. Uh, Hugo's quite a legend around the press room. He knows uh, all the riders and knows all the teams. Hugo, how many years have you been covering cycling now? How many years? Um, I'm 30 years professional, but before I came into uh, cycling, something like 35 years, but 30 years on professional uh, base. So cycling is such a part of the culture here in Belgium and, and, and especially with Flemish, with these Flemish classics. Um, you're obviously part of the biggest newspaper in Belgium. Just tell us a little bit about how many reporters you have, how many pages you guys are doing every day. Yeah, that's um, we are the same level at the, like the Tour de France. Uh, we go 16 a day. Uh, we go with a we call it a separate cat cattern. Only we say the, the races. We are here with many people. So I think here on the field we are with 12 cycling uh, journalists. Only cycling. We are covering from uh, Antwerp uh, the internet side. I think. 30 persons or uh, around wow. cycling yeah yeah because this is big how to how you can say it for an american i think i see i've seen super bowl i don't understand uh, american football but I, I i saw super bowl on the on the on the screen uh, and it's the same like a, a father takes his son to the super bowl boil in america here a father takes his son sunday morning to the tour of flanders like a frenchman takes his son to the borders of the road of the Tour de France. And so you have always new blood, new generations, and it's, I call it, it's genetic. Mm, That's genetic. Yeah, it's genetic because we, when you see the sports season in my country, you have the Red Devils who were third on the world championships, who are the biggest, uh, but in this period of the year, we have the soccer competition in our country, is now secondary to uh, cycling. Cycling is number one now. Uh, the, the sport transcends, uh, cycling transcends sport in the sense that sometimes Tom Bonin made the news for his personal life. Yeah. Uh, is that still true? The big stars today can make the headlines? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because uh, the cycling, uh, cycling champions are really uh, the kings who gather the, the people. Uh, yeah, because we are, Belgium has three different languages, uh, Flemish. I speak Flemish, it's kind of Dutch. Uh, we have the French part and we have the German part, the little German part. So I'm a Flemish one, but I am a Belgian. Mm. And sports gathers uh, really all the, the differences in cultures or in mentality. Mm. 
Now you uh, you've been following the sport for a long time. Uh, tell me that story again when you said you saw Tom Bonin for the first time. What's that story? No, yeah, because I always like after the after the period of the classics, we have now a heavy one starts up from Rupert Newsblood. Um, but we, 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 I, we, in our newspaper from day one in Australia, we have to be there. We have to be in Argentina, and it's a warming up. And then you have uh, the, the the upper row. It's um, the upper row and uh, the first plate. It's something like omelette uh, newsblad and kurnebrskurne. And then we go to the big dish, uh, the main course, uh, the Tour of Flanders. Yeah, yeah. But between those apero and the main course, you have Gantuevelheim, Arlbeke, so we are eating all the time psych- uh, classics, 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 the Roubaix, and then we still have the Ardennes ones. Um, and afterwards, you have uh, under 23, Paris-Roubaix. And I was, I'm always off in uh, May, so I like to go because it's not so far from my house. I like to go uh, over there and... Uh, I was there with my little boy, who is now also into uh, reporting cycling world. And um, I said, Tom Bono was uh, second that day. And I said to, to my son, I said, we have to, to watch that guy. We have to, to, after the finish, we go there. And he was in the, in the car of Kortrijk, mm. sports director, Dirk de Mol, who's yeah. now at Katusha. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, uh, uh, he was there with Hori Cardain, also a good under 23 and I said to Bonan I said I think you will be a champ and he said who are you I say I know you, you will you will you will have some time some time to find out who am I it's not so important but I think you are a champ and uh, I said it and he said oh yeah thanks uh, we will see and uh, my boy still remember that day at the old uh, showers yeah, yeah. And, and before the old showers that I said the uh, moment you will be a champ uh, and I, uh, happily, uh, I'm, I'm luckily he's a child. You were came. right. You were right. He, yeah. I was right. Yeah, yeah. But I like it. I like to, I like to follow young lads hmm. uh, to see that they are really the the big champ. Like what I saw last weekend uh, on Friday of Mark Hirschi, the world champion under 23, a Swiss man. Hmm. If you go on so long in the breakaway and you only have to uh, to let go uh, a certain Mr. Bob Jungles, then you. First year professional, then you have really a, big bri- a, a big bright future. If you don't crash, if you don't, you mm, know, we know all the other tricky things of the who are on the road. Yeah, yeah. Now, obviously, you guys have another big star coming up, uh, Remco and Wout Van Aert. Uh, what, what do you see the future of those two guys, and how how big? I mean, how important is that for Belgian cycling to have some new big yeah, guys coming yeah, up? Yeah, Belgian head was always lucky that they always could follow up the generations. What, what is not the matter, in, what is not the, in America, that's, that's the point, because America has been great, I went down, can be great, I went down. Mm-hmm. We always were so lucky that when you go from Rick van Steenbergen to Rick van Looy to Eddie Merckx, you go, uh, you, we had Rick Scott before Rick, uh, uh, Rick van Steenbergen, then you go to Eddie Merckx, then, then you go uh, to Museo, at the day Museo stops, the next one was there, Tom Bonen. We had Gilbert who came. Mm. We have nearly always two. And now the next big thing for me, it's Wout van Aert. Mm. Directly big thing. Uh, and then we have uh, Remco Evenepoel. But there's still new kids coming up. Mm. Not that much like uh, in the times uh, cycling was a European sport and not a world sport. But we still have uh, good, gifted and uh, well-gifted uh, boys. 
Van Aert, yeah, that, that, this is, he has everything to, to be not the new Tom Bonen because he has, he has a fantastic character. Uh, it's not the new Tom Bonen, it's Wout Van Aert. But I remember, you don't know, in Wargem, there was a Belgian championship, juniors, in the field, cyclocross. And he started too early. Mm. And they, they blew off the, the race. And they said, uh, exit Van Aert, you cannot start anymore. So Van Aert, he went 100 meters uh, further. They give the, the second start and he went into uh, the race and they had to... After two two uh, two uh, laps, they had to catch him like a cowboy had to catch. A <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 really. Because and he said, why, 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 why can't he go on? This is Van Aert. Van Aert. It's right is right, uh, not right is not right. You, it's not gray. It's black or white. Yeah, he has that killer instinct. You can see it. He has a killer instinct, and I think also with with Mathieu van der Poel, who is a Dutchman living in, in Flanders and, and the other uh, at the borders with uh, his own country, the two are uh, fighting so much year after year with each other that they 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 tell up the the, the level. Yeah. And Remco, I mean, uh, at, I went to the, the, the media day down in uh, Calpe. Yeah. They weren't there to talk to Joubert, they were there to talk to Remco. He had a yeah, hundred, yeah, hundred I was laughing with, with, with Joubert and with, with Lampard and all those uh, big wheels of uh, Quickstep because nobody was interested in them, only Remco. Remco is it's a natural-born star. Uh, he was a natural-born star as a, as a soccer player. Mm. He was in the national uh, t- soccer team. Uh, he was the captain. Uh, then he decided to go on uh, cycling, and you see immediately that uh, that he can really uh, live with the pressure of the media and the pressure of the media in my country. It's uh, it's pretty big. It's, it's pretty big because it's Belgium is a a little big town. Hmm. It's it's a country, but and and when you me- you take the measure measures of uh, America, it's a little a big town. Everybody knows everybody. So if Remco goes to a shop, they know uh, Remco has been there. If Remco goes to a pub because he's invited in a pub for a speeching, they say Remco uh, was there and Remco d- drank this and this. They know everything. But he's he's pretty smart to deal with. But as I say to Remco. Can be the next big thing, not in classic season, mm. but in uh, on on the GC uh, mm. uh, level. But we have to give him some years. Give him some space. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But because that it's very nice. They, now they are all talking about Van Aert, and they are all talking about Remco Evenepoel. But we have two other big wheels who are coming up: Jasper Philipsen, mm-hmm. who won his first year uh, World Two Pro by coincidence already in the Tour de Nander, who mm. was third in Nokre. He's living in the shadow. And on the other hand, in the GC uh, shadow, we have Björk Lambrecht, yeah. um, who uh, can be also a uh, big wheel. It sounds like he'll be busy for the next 20 years there. Yeah. <laughs> but I hope to be busy. Bec- uh, I, ho- I hope it stays like this, because if you see how uh, the communities are living by cycling, uh, it's really... Uh, Cycling is, is more than cycling, it's more than sport, it's really the social heart mm. of a community, of a, of a village, of a town, and I think it's better than to be uh, inside after your laptop, to go out and to cheer to them. That's right. All right, Hugo, thanks. We'll thanks. Appreciate it.